Well, what's a new year without making at least one resolution? I realize that there are some who have resolved not to resolve. In other words, resolutions, New Year's resolutions have no part or no role in their life. And then there are others uh, who basically have organized their resolutions and they're ready to start off 2023 with their list of resolutions. I want to suggest to you that resolutions are good for the Christian life. Jonathan Edwards, his life testifies to that. He lived from 1703 to 1753, and he's known for the resolutions that he made as a young man and a young pastor. Uh, He was about 18, 19 years old, and from 1722 to 1723, he came up with a list of guidelines for his life. Later, those guidelines were called resolutions, things that he resolved to do in order to live his life to the glory of God. But way before there was a Jonathan Edwards, there was the writer of Psalm 119. This man who loved God, who loved the word of God, who loved the ways of God, wrote 176 verses. And he wrote those verses to communicate the importance of God's word to us, but also when you look at those verses, they are filled with resolutions. They are filled with promises. They are filled with commitments that the psalmist is making in order to have a healthy walk with God. In Psalm 119, verse 15, the psalmist resolved and said, I will meditate on your word, God. And then in the verse, very next verse, in uh, verse 16, he says, I will delight in thy word. I will not forget your word. And when he says, I shall and I will, what is he doing? He's making promises to God. He is making resolutions to God. And so when you read these 176 verses, that make up this marvelous psalm that's divided into 22 stanzas of eight verses each. When you read this psalm, you'll read about the various commitments, the various promises, the various resolutions that the psalmist makes to God. And that ought to let us know that in our walk with God, it's important that we don't just float through our Christian life, but that we set up resolutions, things that we are committed to as a Christian. In our text, in verses 105 to 112, the psalmist makes one major resolution that's basically divided into three minor resolutions. The psalmist is determined for us and for himself to do certain things. And the primary thing that he's communicating to us 
is that we need to make the resolution that we will be a doer of the word of God. That we will obey God's word. That we will commit to doing the word of God. And that's why I've labeled the message. Resolved, I will do God's word. That's what the psalmist is trying to get us to see in these verses. That the impact of these verses upon our lives is that we should walk away. We should be determined. We should respond by saying resolved. I am resolved to be a doer of the word. I'm not just going to be an individual who hears the word. I'm not just going to be an individual who learns the word or even memorizes the word or even meditates on the word. The psalmist says, I am going to be a practitioner of God's word. And the implication is, is that the child of God, no matter who he or she might be, can do the word of God. That the child of God can stand up before God and say, God, Resolved. I'm resolved to obey you. I am resolved to do your word. And so I want you to join me as we look at these verses and see these three components that makes up his resolution to be a doer of God's word. And the first component of the resolution is resolve to be guided By God's word. If you're going to really fulfill the bigger picture, that the minor picture is that you, as a child of God, must resolve to be guided by the word of God. There, there must be a determination to be led by the Bible. Let the Bible direct and order your steps in 2023 and in all the days of your life. And if this is going to happen, you have to recognize that God's word provides personal light. I don't know if you heard that. God's word provides personal light. Not just light for others, but it provides light for you as an individual child of God. The the psalmist's familiar words in verse 105, when he says, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Those words you must agree with if you're going to be guided by God's words. You have to have the same conviction the same belief that the psalmist has concerning God's word. He refers to God's word as a lamp and as light. And it's for his feet and it's also for his path. So when he thinks about the wonderful word of God, he understands that it provides light for him. He's not declaring what others say. He's saying, God, your word is a lamp to my feet. Your word, God, is a light to 
my path. So he sees God, particularly as he's revealed himself in his word. He sees the word of God as a lamp. In ancient days, in the days of the psalmist, a lamp was a small bowl that was lipped or neck to hold oil or a wick. And an individual would light that oil or that wick, not to light up a room, but instead to provide light for the person's next step. So that was the purpose of a lamp. You, you lit the lamp so that you could see where you should take your next step. A light that the psalmist mentioned, that was much broader. It provided light not just for your next step, but for all of your steps, really for your path. And what he's saying in modern day terminology is that God's word is a flashlight if you point it down at your feet so that you can know where to take the next step. But it's also a floodlight so that it lights up your path so you can see where you're going in the direction that God wants you to take. Another way to look at this, God's word is like the low beams in a car. It's a lamp, but it's like the high beam that serves as a light for the path. God's word is not just for the broad picture, but it's for the immediate picture. It helps me take the next step. And the psalmist recognized the value, the importance, the reality that God's word was a lamp and a light for his own personal life. But he did more than just recognize this. He responded to God's word providing personal light. You see, it's hypocritical to tell others that God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, and yet I don't live by that lamp and I don't live by that light. Many of us know verse 105. We can quote it. We've heard it. But but the issue is not can I quote it, but, but do I live it? And so when you look at the psalmist being guided by God's word, yes, he recognized that God's word provides light, personal light, but he also responded to the fact that God's word provides light. That is, he acted on what he affirmed. He affirmed that God's word was light for him, but he acted upon it. And so we read in verse 106, that this psalmist makes the statement, I have sworn and I will confirm it to keep thy righteous judgments. See, see, he's moving to just his conviction about the word now to his conduct. And he says, God, I've taken an oath. I place myself under an oath. I'm bound by what this commitment is that I've made. I've sworn. Sometime in the past in his life, he swore. He took an oath. He said to God, this is what I'm going to do. And now as he writes this verse, he says, and I confirm it. No, that is, I will fulfill it. 
It wasn't just a nice sounding statement. It wasn't just a nice sounding conviction. God, I swore it and I confirm it right now. And what did he place himself under the oath to do? The text says that he swore to keep, to keep God's righteous judgments. That is, he swore to follow and be guided by the word of God. It was a serious matter for him. He stood before almighty God sometime in the past of his life. And he says, God, I have sworn. This is what I've said to you. This is what I placed myself under the oath. But God, I'm here to ratify and fulfill my oath. I'm committed, God, to obey to keep your righteous judgments. God, I believe that your word consists of judgments, of decisions that help me in my walk with you. And so, God, I am committed to that. So the psalmist, he resolved to live by God's word. He resolved to be guided by the word. He understood He lived in a dark, dark world that required light. He understood his own heart was deceitful beyond all imagination. So he didn't rely upon his feelings. He didn't rely upon what others said. He was guided by the word of God. And so many of us get in trouble because we act upon what we feel. We act upon what we think. We need to act and be guided by God's word because that's the light that God has given us to live in this dark world, to know where we're going, to make sure we're not entrapped in sin. And so that's his conviction. His conviction is to be guided by the light of the word of God. And if you're going to be a doer of the word, that's where it begins. you got to resolve you got to determine to be guided, not by your feelings, not by your therapist, not by even your human counselor, but ultimately guided by what thus saith the Lord. That's how the psalmist made it through life. There's a second component to this resolution. Uh, to do God's word, and that is resolve to be sustained by God's word, to be undergirded, and to be upheld by the word of God. That's the emphasis in verses 107 through 110. And not just to be sustained in the good times of life, but the psalmist tells us that we are to let the word of God sustain us in times of danger, in times of difficulty, when it seems like we can't go on, when we don't know what the next thing is to do. The psalmist Resolved to be sustained by the word of God. 
And may I just encourage you, let God's word sustain you. In the times of danger, let it sustain you. Don't buy into the myth or the foolishness or the, the stupidness that God's word is not sufficient. That somehow your situation is so hard, so difficult that God's word can't help. No, resolve to be sustained and upheld and undergirded by the word of God. Let God's word sustain you in times of affliction. I know we don't like to talk about affliction. It's hard for us just to sit on the church pew because it might be a little bit uncomfortable for us. But the psalmist is real with God. And he says to God in verse 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. This man who loves God, loves God's word, loves God's way, this man says to God, God, I am experiencing affliction. Affliction that he says is exceedingly hard. That's sorely difficult, that is very much painful. He says, God, I am exceedingly and greatly afflicted. And for those of us who are familiar with Psalm 119, this shouldn't shock us. This shouldn't surprise us because the psalmist has spoken in this psalm of his affliction. He even had the audacity basically to say that affliction was good for him. Anybody want to say amen to that? We say it, but do we believe it? But this individual, he was afflicted. Uh, He just said uh, earlier that uh, back in verse 67, that before he was afflicted, he went astray. So he saw the value of affliction. Because sometimes we get out there, we're doing our thing, we're not being guided by the light, we're not depending upon the word of God, and we're out there, we're doing our thing, and God has to reel us back in. And one of the ways he reels us back in is by sending affliction to us. And the psalmist said, hey, I had gone astray. But he says, before I was afflicted, that's when I went astray. But God brought some affliction in my life. And now, guess what? I'm back on the right path. He even has the nerve to say, it was good. It was good that I was afflicted because he learned God's statutes. And he even says that God has afflicted him in faithfulness. We want to blame the devil. We want to blame the, our enemies. Well, sometimes we need to realize the affliction comes straight from the hand of God. He afflicts us so that we will get back on the right path. So it doesn't shock us to read the psalmist saying, I am exceedingly afflicted. But the question is, what do you do when you're in the midst of affliction? 
when you're experiencing great affliction, exceeding affliction, what, what do you do? Well, we should do what the psalmist did. And you know what he did? He ate a praise sandwich. Now, I'll say it again. He ate a praise sandwich. That's what we learned in the last part of verse 107 and also in verse 108. After telling God I'm exceedingly afflicted, he ate a praise sandwich. The first slide of that praise sandwich was he cried out to God in light of his condition and said, God, revive me. Favorite phrase and expression in Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, God, revive me. The affliction has spiritually drained him. The affliction had him down. And he does what we need to do. Cry out to God. Cry out to the one who can do something about your affliction. And so he cries out and says, God, revive me. Rejuvenate me spiritually. Bring me back to spiritual life. That was the first slice of the praise sandwich. First slice of bread. But the meat is in verse 108. When he says, oh, accept the free will offering of my mouth. That's praise. As the psalmist is writing this, he breaks out in praise. And he wants God to be pleased, to be pleased with his praise. He says, God, accept, be pleased with the free will offering of my mouth. He doesn't say be pleased with the free will offering of my hands as if it's some kind of animal sacrifice. He's talking about the sacrifice of praise. He's talking about the sacrifice of thanksgiving. He's talking about that voluntary act of praising God out of my mouth. And he's saying, God, I'm exceedingly afflicted, but, but I have not allowed my affliction to drown me in sorrow and in sadness and in complaints. But God, I'm praising you. The, the sacrifice of praise in Psalm 50 verse 14 is called the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And in Hebrews 13 verse 16 is talking about the fact that we are to let ourselves make sure we offer God the sacrifice of praise to him. Continually coming out of our mouth ought to be praise and thanksgiving. No matter what the situation is, we don't just praise him in the good times. That's easy. We don't just praise him when we're on the mountaintop. That's easy. But when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, when we're deep down in the midst of affliction, praise, eat a praise sandwich. The, the meat offered to God voluntarily, not because somebody's forcing you, but willingly offered to God the sacrifice of praise. And then the second slice of the bread is found at the end of verse 8. The, the psalmist says to God, 
teach me. Let me remind you of this sandwich, this sacrifice of praise. It begins with him asking God, revive me. And in the midst of that, he's praising God. But he ends by saying, teach me. Teach me. The the thing that he wants so much is to know more of his God. He's not looking for solutions necessarily. He's not looking at what can God tell me about how to get out of this situation. He feels that the best thing for him in this situation is for God to revive him, put some spiritual pep in his step, but also for God to teach him. And again, this is a reoccurring phrase in Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, teach me. And sometimes he says, God, teach me your word. Sometimes he says, God, teach me the way of your statue. But he wants God to teach him. He knows that the very, very best thing for him in times of affliction is not deliverance. But the very best thing for him is knowing his God. To be taught by God about who God is. So let God's word sustain you in time of affliction. But also let God's word sustain you in times of danger. That's verses 109 and 110. The psalmist speaks of his danger in an interesting way. He talks about his life being continually in his hand. That's strange. Your life in your hand If you look at that expression, your life in your hand in other places, it speaks of a person's life being at risk, being in danger. That there are times when people took their life in their hand and did something for God, knowing that it could cost them their life. And the psalmist says, my life is continually Not just one moment, one day, but continually in my hands. I'm committed to living for God. And because I'm committed to being a doer of the word, it puts my life at risk. It caused my life to face dangers. So so he's speaking very generally. He says, my life is in my hand continually. But in verse 10, he goes on to say, the wicked. Now he's getting specific. Now he's crystallizing the danger. And he says in verse 10, the wicked have laid a snare for me. Sometimes you can talk about danger in general, but sometimes you can pinpoint it. And the psalmist says, I can pinpoint the danger I'm experiencing. I have enemies. And he identifies these enemies by their character and also by their conduct. Their character, they're wicked. And again, we've read about the wicked in Psalm 119. In the previous stanza, the psalmist says, I have more wisdom than the wicked. And he also talked about in a previous sermon that I preached, that he says that the wicked wait for me to destroy me. So he knew he had enemies. 
And the reason why he had enemies, not because he was this or that, it was because he was committed to living God's word. If you are faithful to be guided by God's word and to be sustained by God's word, you're going to get enemies. They're, they're going to get people, there are going to be people who just don't like what you have to say. And some of you might be saying, I don't like what God's word is saying. I don't like what you're saying, preacher. You're telling me to be guided by the word? I think I got a better navigation system. You're telling me to be sustained by God's word in times of affliction, in times of danger? Well, I think God should just get me out of my situation. You're wrong. The psalmist was committed to living God's word, and he had enemies. And what they did, they laid traps for him. Traps that you couldn't see with your naked eyes, but you can only see if you were being guided by God's word. Traps that were camouflaged. And so these wicked individuals, they weren't hunting animals. They were hunting down the psalmist. So here he is. Life is in his hands. Traps being set all around him that he can't see in order that he could be caught by these wicked people. What do you do when you're facing danger? What do you do in times like this? Well, the psalmist tells us what he didn't do. He says at the end of verse 9, that he didn't let this danger cause him to forget God's word. That's good. Because the enemy of our souls likes to bring affliction and hardship and difficulties in our life so that we will forget God's word, so that we won't do it. But the psalmist says, my life is in my hands, but I don't forget God's word. He's not saying I can quote all the different verses. He's saying I don't push the word of God aside in my life. I don't operate and act as if there is no word of God to provide me with light and guidance. And the other thing he says, now when the wicked lay their traps for me, I don't let that cause me. I don't let that danger cause me to stray from God's word. It's sad when the people of God allow danger and hardships and affliction to lead them to sin. When you're thinking God's not fair, when you're thinking that God should have did this or should have did that, and if that leads you to sin, then you're not responding properly to danger and affliction in your life. The psalmist says, I don't don't let danger, I don't let the fact that people are trying to trap me, I don't let the fact that I have enemies who are wicked going after me cause me to stray from the word of God. I remain faithful to it. I remain loyal to it. In other words, he said, I don't allow danger to cause me to sin. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, if we really are honest with ourselves, oftentimes when we sin, it's because we feel things didn't go our way. That some tragedy, some trial, some hardship, some difficulty has come into your life. And our response is, if that's how God is going to treat me, I'm going to choose to sin. And the psalmist says, no, let God's word sustain you in times of danger. When your life is in your hands, when the wicked are after you, don't cave in. But instead, make sure that you remain faithful to the word of God. The third and final component of this resolution to be a doer of God's word, to do God's word, is resolve to be satisfied with the word of God. To be satisfied. Are you a satisfied customer of this book? You know, sometimes uh, celebrities are paid money to advertise a certain product. And they advertise that certain product, not because they believe in it, because the money's good. Now, they might advertise soap. They ain't got a bar of soap in their house. But the money's good. And the question is, are, are you a satisfied customer of God's word? As people look at you and the role that God's word plays in your life, do, do they see, oh, there's a satisfied customer of the word of God. There's somebody who loves the word and lives the word and believes that God's word is a lamp and a light and believes that God's word will support and uphold. Are you a satisfied customer of God's word? The, the psalmist was. He was satisfied with the word of God and we know that because of certain actions he had taken. He said, I have inherited thy testimonies forever, God. He saw God's word as an inheritance. What a way to look at the Bible. That when you, as a believer, as a child of God, when God saves you, God gives you not only salvation, but he gives you his word. He bequeaths his word to you as an inheritance for your life. And the psalmist says, when it comes to the word of God, to God's testimony, God's faithfulness about himself, the word of God, he says, I have inherited thy testimonies. Not just for a particular occasion, not for particular times, but I have inherited for, for, forever. 
I see the word of God as something that is a treasure for all of the days of my life. And I remember many years ago when I was going through Psalm 119 for one of the first times, I remember coming to this verse and just saying to myself, what a an inheritance. What an inheritance. Someone else put it this way, the Bible, what a treasure. Do you realize how valuable, how precious the Bible is? Do you realize the treasure that it is? It's not just a treasure for the preacher or the teacher of a Sunday school class. It's a treasure for the child of God. And if you're satisfied with it, it will show itself that you can say, I have inherited inherited your testimonies, God, forever. Why? Because indeed, they are the joy of my heart. Your word brings delight. Your word brings joy. Your word brings satisfaction to my innermost being. Uh, Things might be chaotic on the outside, but on the inside, it's your word that is causing me to be satisfied. You know my favorite illustration. It's like eating my mama's sweet potato pie. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's eating his mama's sweet potato pie when he's in the word. He, he's satisfied. And when you're a satisfied customer with the word of God, you can say to God, I have inherited thy testimony. But not only that, in verse 12, 112, you can say, I have practiced your word. So he talks about this eternal inheritance in verse 111, and then this eternal practice in verse 112. He says in that last verse of our stanza, I have inclined my heart, my innermost being. I have inclined it. To do what? To perform, to do, to practice thy statutes, thy precepts forever, even to the end. That's how satisfied he was with the word. He could say, God, when it comes to your word, I practice it eternally. I have taken my heart. That heart that I prayed for in verse 36 when, when I asked you to incline my heart to your testimony. And now when he comes to this verse, he says, God, that heart that you have inclined to your testimony, I've taken my heart and inclined them to practice, to perform, to do your word. Not just occasionally, not just when it feels good, but eternally, forever and ever. He was a satisfied customer, and it showed up in him taking in the word as an inheritance, and it showed up in him practicing the word. Resolved. Resolved. I will do God's word. I will be a doer of the word of God. I will incline my heart to perform your statutes, God. 
Now you know and I know that resolutions are easy to make. They're easy to make. But they're difficult and hard to keep. It will be impossible for you to keep this resolution without the resolve to be guided by the word of God. You got to settle that matter, my friends. You, you say you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You say that you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ. You got to settle the matter. Is, is this book going to be your guide? It's going to be your lamp to your feet and your light to your path. There's no way that you can say to God, resolved, I will do thy word until you resolve to be guided by the word. Likewise, there is no way you will fulfill this resolution without resolving to be sustained by the word of God in times of danger and affliction. You have to eat the praise sandwich. You have to cry out to God in times of affliction, renew me, revive me, teach me. But, but, but in those times of affliction, you have to be praising God and thanking him because there's so many wonderful, magnificent, marvelous things that he's done for us. In times of danger, in those times will come. You got to make sure that you don't allow the danger to cause you to forget the word and to stray from the word. It will be impossible to keep this resolution if you don't resolve. If you don't resolve, my friends, to be satisfied with God's word. Know why Bible should be the bestsellers? It ought to be because of Christians who practice and live the word of God. We ought to be the greatest advertisement there ever is for the Bible. Because we've made the commitment to inherit this precious book as a treasure. Because we made the commitment to perform the word of God. The greatest proof, or let me put it this way, one of the greatest proofs that you're a satisfied customer with the Bible is when you say to God, I have inclined my heart to do your precepts, your statutes forever, even to the end. May God, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his magnificent grace, enable us and help us to say before him, resolved, I will do your word, God. It's not about what you say before others, but like the psalmist, you need to say before God, I will do your word. I will practice it. I will live it. I need your grace. I need your enablement. I need your help. 
I'm not strong enough to do it in my own strength. But God, this is my resolution. Today, and throughout 2023, and throughout all the days of my life, God, I'm saying to you right now that I have resolved to do your word. And I hope that's a resolution that you will commit to by God's grace and God's enablement. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. What a treasure. What a blessing that you have given to men and women, boys and girls who have put their faith in the Lord and Jesus Christ. Help us to resolve to be doers of the word, not to impress others, but Father, out of love for what you have done for us and out of a recognition that we realize the beauty, the majesty, the glory of your word, when we think about what your word is able to do, how it's able to keep us from sin, how it's able to make us wise, how it's able to guide us and direct us. Father, when we think about the preciousness of your word, what a treasure it is. May you move upon our hearts so that we incline our hearts to do thy statutes not just at this moment, but every day of our lives throughout all eternity. Help us to be those who do your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.